0: Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled LDS Female Sexuality, Part One, originally
1: produced and published by the Mormon Mental Health Podcast. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Mental Health and Relational Series. This is Natasha Helfer Parker, and today I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. She's a licensed psychotherapist and holds a Ph.D. in counseling psychology from Boston College where she wrote her dissertation on LDS women and sexuality. She has taught college-level classes on human sexuality. She currently has a private therapy practice in Chicago where she lives with her husband and three children, and she's an active member of the LDS Church. Today, we're going to talk about her dissertation, her practice, and common things she sees working within the framework of LDS marriage and sexuality. Hello, Jennifer. Thanks for being I with us awesome. today. How are Thanks you? Thanks for having me. Good. <laughs> Good. Okay, well, I gave a brief introduction, so why don't you go ahead and fill in the blanks? Like, where'd you get your undergraduate? How'd you go about getting your PhD? Yeah.
0: Sure. Um, So I grew up in Burlington, Vermont. I was the fifth of eight children in a very active LDS family. My dad was the stake president and branch president and all those things growing up. Um, And um, uh, so I grew up and went to Brigham Young University as an undergrad, and I studied psychology and women's studies. And... um, you know, a lot of my thinking about feminism and women's issues definitely were cultivated during that period. And um, went on a mission, saw the plight of women very much in those experiences. And um, where did you go on your mission? I was in Spain. uh, Seville was the mission name at that time. And uh, Seville, Spain. And, um, and then I uh, came back finished my undergraduate degree and decided to go on to get a Ph.D. and went to Boston College, got my master's and Ph.D. in counseling psychology. So um, so what years were you at BYU? I went in 86 uh, for two years, then went on a mission, then came back and went three more years and graduated in 93.
1: So you were there during the time that um, some of these feminist professors were Yes. not being renewed with their contracts and, and things like That's that.
0: That's right. That's right. That all happened the, the last year I was there. And I was actually working with, uh, I was a teaching assistant for Tomi Ann Roberts. And I was just aware of a lot of those issues that were going on at the time. So
1: yeah, I had her for several classes as well. I loved her.
0: Yeah, she was great.
1: Um, what, can you talk a little bit more about your experience at BYU as far as your women's studies experience and
0: Yeah, sure. I was, um, you know, I think I, um, coming out of my own family and growing up in the church, I had a lot of ambivalence around women's roles and what that meant for me and both embraced it on one hand and also struggled with it in terms of um, its meaning towards my own autonomy and my sense of self and my own sense of value and so on. So I I was very um, interested in the question of women and women's values, uh, value in society, and women's position relative to men. And I think being at BYU during that period was very uh, important in my thinking because I saw how much those same questions were very much trying to be worked out within uh, the group, at least the group at BYU at the time. And... um, And it just helped me to see all the sides of the issues, essentially, see the different positions that various people would take and basically identifying with all of the positions at once. (laughs) You know, I wasn't clearly... In some ways, I could understand the threat that feminism was to the church and to BYU. And I could also understand the stances that many of my professors were taking and the positions they were advocating and holding. And I, I... I... I found it to be helpful in my way of thinking, and I also um, felt like I was able to really turn to a lot of professors and people and ask for their perspectives and thinking because it was so much in the larger experience at BYU during that
1: time. So, um, Well, that kind of ties right into, um, and one of the things that I loved most about reading your dissertation was this ability to look at both sides of the equation. Um, You very much look at the pros that the church offers through, you know, its standards, um, but also juxtapose that against the negative consequences of its high expectations and realizing that I think most women's experiences are usually somewhere in between. They're not all positive or all negative. Right. So I guess with that, yeah, let's get into your dissertation. It's titled uh, Female Sexual Agency in Patriarchal Culture, the Case of Mormon Women. Mm-hmm. So what was starting that process like, and what did your dissertation committee think about you approaching this subject? How did you kind of land mm-hmm. on the subject of sexuality in your in your PhD program? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, something kind of funny is when I was dating my husband, I, I was thinking about writing on the topic of forgiveness. And uh, <laughs> so he told his mother that was what I was going to be studying, and she thought, what a nice girl you're and then <laughs> and then by the time we were actually getting married I had switched it to sexuality it was kind of funny because suddenly the image of a nice girl you know seemed to fade but um, she' That's didn't great really not really think that but kind of a, but uh, you know i um, um I was asked when I was unmarried to teach um, a couple of classes as um, at the doctoral level meaning as a doctoral student i was asked to teach to the undergrad population and and comically I was asked to teach two classes, uh, one of which was sexuality and the other was drugs and alcohol. So here I was, a Mormon woman with no personal experience in either of these topics, and here I was asked to be a professor <laughs> on both of them. So it was funny, but I I took the, the the human sexuality course. I approached by looking at the ways that our our society, um, American society in particular looks at the topic of sexuality and how um, we understand it in this day and age and how that contrasts with um, different periods of time and then I also looked cross-culturally at how sexuality is understood culturally speaking so I it really helped me start thinking more about Mormonism and um, the approach to sexuality within the church and how that very much had shaped how I thought about sex and how um i felt about being a sexual being and also all of the feminism that i had read and had thought a lot about how i also felt in many ways and in particular as i was in training and working with a lot of um in training to be a therapist and working with a lot of supervisors and other students um seeing a lot of the biases towards sexual conservatism um that it was a form of female oppression um, to value virginity, for example, and sexual restraint. And, you know, on the one hand, growing up in the church, I took a lot of comfort in the law of chastity. Personally, I did. I felt like, you know, it, it was protective for me. It protected me from male sexual um, aggression or Expectations that I didn't feel prepared for. I liked the idea of committed sexuality very much. I, you know, liked the idea of two people coming together in a marriage as virgins and holding this um, experience for marriage. So I identified with all of that. And yet I also was very curious to, you know, I knew I had friends and people who talked about feeling um, sexually uncomfortable upon getting married and feeling. feelings of shame and inhibition. And so I had a lot of questions about how to understand Mormon women's experiences in the sexual realm. What were the upsides and the downsides of our particular particular cultural framework? So that led me to my question. And, my, and in terms of the question about my committee, they were very supportive. I had a great dissertation chair. I had a, um, a group of five other students in my PhD program. We were very bonded as a group and we came, we were all from very diverse backgrounds. I mean, you couldn't have a more diverse group than, than my PhD cohort, but you know, I talked a lot about my faith and I, my professors were well aware of some of the, my own origins um, and the questions I was grappling with and, and my committee was very supportive in
1: my research. And therefore, was supportive of spirituality being part of your training?
0: Yeah. I don't know if spirituality was so much a part of my training as maybe understanding religion, more from a cultural frame. Um, and was how effects mm-hmm. there There's a lot of multiculturalism as a, um important frame for how to be an effective therapist. And so that was very much um, in my program as well as... Um, postmodernist frames of reference and all that kind of stuff. So there was there was certainly a lot of room for it within my particular group of prof, uh, professors.
1: Okay, so understanding the context where people are coming from that may come into your office, understanding what those contexts may be, how that That's affected right. their lives and and the work that you're going to be doing with them. That's right. Okay, so your study was definitely one uh, that was, I guess we deem it qualitative versus quantitative. You mm-hmm. gather data through... Extensive interviews and questionnaires, uh, your sample was fairly small compared to a quantitative study. Um, so in other words, the, the difference between qualitative and quantitative being that you're going to be looking at more in-depth, rich information mm-hmm. versus just answering a questionnaire mm-hmm. that then can be quantified into, well, 50% of the people answered this way or that way or mm-hmm. things like that. Right. So yeah, of course, that's there's... True pros and cons to this type of data. Um, can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, um, I think originally my intention was to do a quantitative study, and I wanted to look more at just what women's experiences were, you know, how much shame they felt, and, you know, how, what, what practices they engaged in sexually, and all that kind of thing, just kind of wanting to get a sample of what Mormon women's experiences were. But when I went to the literature and saw how extremely little there is written about Mormon women, you uh, in general, but in particular with respect to sexuality, um, my committee really felt like I needed to do a qualitative study to really first understand what the themes are that emerge within Mormon women's experiences. And
1: um, did so- you find did you find anything out there? about Mormon, were there there's any
0: studies? A, a little bit, there's a, uh, I mean, a writer, I can't remember what her credentials are Mary Beth Rains, I think has written the most about Mormon women and sexuality not a great deal about that subject, but has written, published some research on Mormon women's experiences that's more quantitative and um, similar to what I was thinking of doing originally which is looking at practices and behaviors So, but not much more than that
1: Okay, so you gathered your sample of women, which came to be 16 altogether. Um, can you tell me about that process?
0: Sure. Um, so, in a, in a qualitative approach, um, the objective is to really make sure that you've covered all of the themes um, that would emerge, meaning, what are the experiences, what are the dominant sort of uh, ways of understanding what Mormon women's experiences would be. And so my committee originally thought I needed 10 to 12 people. And, and I think if it had been up to me, I would have, you know, interviewed 50 people first, because, you know, first of all, I love doing the interviews. I found them extremely interesting. And, um, and I just like connecting with the women themselves as I heard their stories. But um, my committee just said, you you know, stop 16 is enough. You've (laughs) you've reached saturation meaning you know you're getting redundancy in the themes and so and I was also paying for the interviews and I was a poor student at the time so I stopped I think at some point I would like to write a book on the subject and I have been collecting data just through my clients um, and we'll probably do more interviews down the road but at some point I would like to
1: write a book um, on the subject so that'd be awesome yeah so you asked for women in a certain age bracket. I think they had that was somewhere between like 23 and 55, somewhere around there. They had to have been married at some point. I, were there any people who were divorced? I'm assuming they were all heterosexual. What what were some of the things that you were looking for? Yeah,
0: they, everyone was heterosexual. Uh um there was one woman who had been divorced and remarried. Um but uh, everyone was married at the time of the interview and also one of them, I don't know if you said this, but that they grew up in the church, they grew up LDS and um, were had been married at some point, right, as you said.
1: And had grown up within the LDS structure of sexual education, sexual That's expectation. Right. And you also right. found that this was a fairly educated group, which maybe isn't, doesn't quite fall under the norms. As far as like post high school, there was a lot of...
0: That's Right. So perhaps because I was in the Boston area and uh, went around to wards in that area, I I just happened to get a a relatively educated group of women who had volunteered. So in that sense, it's just perhaps a limitation of the applicability of the findings because had I um, gathered data from across socioeconomic levels, there may have been different themes that would have emerged possibly. And even
1: geographically and some. geographically
0: yes one of the things is these were not women that had all grown up in new england most of i mean people had grown up all over the world actually but were there either as spouses of people and, uh, that were currently students or um so where people had grown up was actually rather diverse but people were all happened to be in new england at the time
1: how did you get the women to say yeah i'll do this like how did you approach them
0: Um, I went to wards and after Relief Society got the permission from the Relief Society president or the bishop, and and then after the closing prayer, stood up and said, "You know, I'm doing this study. This is what I'm looking at. I'd like to interview you for four to six hours, and I'll pay you thirty dollars for your time." And and I had no trouble getting volunteers. It it happened pretty quickly.
1: Okay. So it wasn't a random study. Obviously, it was people coming up to you and that's part of it, too, is, you know, the type of women who would volunteer to talk about their sexuality, which I don't think is necessarily the norm among Mormon women. Right. So that also kind of ties into the type of sample you had.
0: Right. That's right. And, you know, it maybe um, would mean that these would be women who are more comfortable with their sexuality because they're willing to speak about it. Um, it could be that these are women who are poor enough that 30 bucks would get them to talk. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right,
0: <laughs> and it could be what I also found was that there were sometimes women who felt quite a bit of distress about their sexual relationship and really were willing to do it because they wanted to talk to someone who was at least a therapist in training on the subject and they wanted access to other women's um, experiences because one of the things I said was $30 and a copy of my dissertation so you, you know, so they knew they could read other women's experiences and a lot of women expressed interest in that
1: so almost as an opportunity to heal themselves they saw that
0: yes and is that that and i think to see am i normal like what mm-hmm. what's everyone else experiencing because there's really not a forum to talk about sexuality in the church
1: and what's normal or not normal
0: right and so many people in my experience are having what they consider not normal and they don't know how normal they are
1: sure So the purpose of your dissertation was to measure this concept that you talk about, sexual agency. So can you Mm -hmm. give us a little bit about what you mean by sexual agency?
0: Sure. So sexual agency really comes out of the radical feminist literature, which I'll talk about if you'd like me to. But sexual agency in particular is the ability to act on your own behalf in the sexual realm. So that's to say that you get to decide if you're a sexual agent, you know, where, when, and with whom you choose to be sexual. And I use sexual agency in the dissertation interchangeably with uh, sexual subjectivity, um, which is to say, you know, I'm a, similarly, but I'm a subject of my sexuality, of my sexual desire, rather than the object of someone else's desire. So that's what I'm getting at is... to what degree do Mormon women demonstrate sexual agency or the ability to enact what they want in the sexual
1: realm? instead of being acted upon? That's right. okay. So yeah, you start your dissertation by looking through the feminist lens. The whole first almost third of your dissertation is is kind of explaining uh, the feminist critique mm-hmm. um, on and its take on patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And you also differentiate between feminism and radical feminism, which I think you just mm-hmm. mentioned that. So, yeah, if you could talk a little bit about those terms and what they mean and how sure. they differ. And
0: So feminism in general is just, you know, an ideology or it's political theory that basically advocates the equal rights of women in, in all domains of life, whether that's social, political, economic. That, that that women have equal rights to men.
1: And, and you don't have to be a woman to be a feminist.
0: That's right. You don't. <laughs> that's right. Not, exactly. And radical feminism in particular is a current within the broader um, thinking of feminism that emerged in particular in the sixties and seventies. And that that's basic argument was that patriarchy is at the core of women's oppression, and patriarchy being the rule of men over women, or the the basic assumption of male supremacy that justifies their dominance over women, that that patriarchy is is at the root, which is the meaning of radical, of women's um, disadvantaged status in society. And so radical feminism was the right Critique because it's in particular is uh, critical of patriarchy for its oppression of women, and then furthermore it says that sexuality is the most powerful way in which patriarchal ideology oppresses women's strength. So, you know, um, I'm trying to remember, it's Catherine McKinnon who as a is a feminist who talked about you know that sexuality is is most one's own for women and yet most taken away in patriarchy that it's it's women's greatest source of strength and so if you can oppress or suppress that then you keep women from being able to navigate their way to their own strength and then that's how you can keep them subservient so that's a radical feminist theory And it intersected nicely with my question because here I'm looking at a patriarchal group, Mormonism, and in particular that ideology's effect on women's sexuality.
1: So in essence, radical feminism is agreeing with our Mormon doctrine that sexuality is the most sacred part of our self, in a sense. And when that is um, oppressed against or whatever these patriarchy terms are, then that's when we are most vulnerable is women yes that's right so can you go ahead and define patriarchy then
0: so you know patriarchy is you know basically a system of power that that organizes society based on the assumption of male superiority so it's men who are it's the the structures of that society are organized in such a way that you say men have dominance. Men get advantage over women. Men uh, get to rule and define um, what the way of life is for women. I think one person I wrote about in my dissertation you know, men set the stage and women get to be the actors upon the stage that's set by men. And so, you know, patriarchy is the rule of men.
1: And this isn't always done. Um in a mean way or it, it, sometimes I think people are like, well, you know, I, my husband isn't mean or the people that I see as my leaders aren't awful, you know, predatory type. men, <laughs> uh, And so they have a hard time understanding that it still falls under the umbrella of patriarchy. Yes. Because right. they don't, so, yeah, they don't define right. it that negative.
0: Yeah. And I make a distinction um, of benevolent patriarchy, which is Mormonism as opposed to other, forms of patriarchy where it's not just about, you know, autocratic leadership in, um, in benevolent patriarchy. It's more about stewardship and care towards the needs of women and children. Protection. Protection, exactly. So Mormonism is a benevolent patriarchy. And so it's still about the rule of men and, and male dominance, but also with men given the stewardship of caring for, taking care of the women in their stewardship. Well,
1: and so you point out that even though um, women are told that they're wonderful and of worth in our church LDS culture, they are told this by men. Men are the ones who are telling them Mm -hmm. whether or not they are of value, and so therefore that definitely falls under this umbrella of patriarchy. Women leaders are still presided over by men. Um, Yes, we have leaders who are women, and yes, we have women who teach and all those things, but it's still all under the umbrella of the prophet who is a man. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: then I think you also mentioned, too, that the overall umbrella is under God, which even though we see it as Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, it's definitely Heavenly Father who we are focused on. Right.
0: That's right. So, yeah, so it's a system in which, you know, from a radical feminist perspective, anyway, would say, you know, men define what is true, what is right, what can be considered truth. um, The prophet
1: has the power to have revelation for all of us. So it's a man who has the power to do that.
0: Right. And so men have the power to define women. And, um, You know, one of the radical feminist critiques of patriarchy is that gender ideology, you know, gender role assignments is a tool of patriarchy, that if you say women are supposed to be X, Y, and Z, um, it's a way of keeping women in a subservient position. And one of the positions I sort of demonstrate in the dissertation is to say, you know, we hear about women's roles all the time, very... Relative to how much we hear about men's roles, you know, men's roles are a given. Women's roles need to be defined by the men in our lives. So it's about proscribing a particular role for women is a tool of patriarchy, according to radical feminism.
1: Right, and even this idea that, um, you know, we're told to become perfected as Christ, so Christ would be our main role model who is a man. Therefore, mm-hmm. it's that kind of this idea that women are to become like this man. So it's yeah, it's mm-hmm. a little, yes, it can be a so little again, confusing. From a
0: radical feminist perspective, it's saying for women to say that God is male, is to ask women to be identified what perfection is, and what I should be is basically other than what I am that I supposed to be identified with the other sex as being what epitomizes perfection. And even though we believe in mother and heaven again a radical feminist perspective would say she's silent therefore the role model is around silence and we can't speak to her right she's background and so um, so again it's women identifying themselves as other relative to men this is a psychologically oppressive stance
1: okay so let's review then the main arguments that you lay out um, in your dissertation that radical feminism makes regarding patriarchy and how we as LDS women could fall into that those kind of predicaments and I think the first thing that you discuss is kind of this de- delegitimization of desire
0: mm-hmm. yeah so right so um, radical feminism would say you know the way that Sexuality gets taken away from women is saying that desire is not legitimate for women it's not feminine, so the gender construct is what what's con- constitutes femininity, and femininity is to be um, pr- desirable but not to have desire so you orient to sexuality by trying to be uh sexually desired by men who are the agents of desire so Um, And there's lots of ways in which this gets communicated. But the best way to be a woman in a patriarchal culture is to be a virgin, to be virginal, to be pure. Um, And then if you're going to be sexual, it's only with in accommodation to your husband, essentially, because the desire is not given legitimacy through the discourse. And so... So that that's the radical feminist perspective. And then I think that the other uh, view is that it limits women's control in the sexual realm, either through reproductive control um, or through the ability to control when and how they are sexual. So uh, making themselves um, vulnerable to rape and sexual coercion and so on.
1: Um, and then, moving even further with that the when those things happen, the laws around rape or abortion or those kinds of more serious things, and even our larger culture are still under a patriarchal that 's type right. umbrella that 's right,
0: and you know the the way that this is also challenged by women is um the radical feminism would say the the other way that this is challenging for women is that the gender ideology is around at once being non sexual and needing to there and also take care of men at the same time. That because you are a woman, you are inherently a nurturer and you find your comfort in comforting others. And so that that sets women up to be gatekeepers at the same time that they have to be Kind and nurturing so they 're managing the this in, you know this um, the urgency of male sexual desire trying to keep themselves virginal and pure while at the same time taking care of his ego, and that this sets women up for sexual coercion and then the other thing radical feminism talks about is this idea that the the ideology around sexual desire is that you 're either virginal or if you have desire, then you are the other extreme, the whore, you know, the um, th- that you are one or the other, and so that oftentimes, if women show desire, then they lose their rights to say no, essentially, because they've proved their they're not the virginal pure. They're the other. They're the the whore, and therefore they're not they're not able to say to refuse unwanted sexual advances,
1: like high school girls who maybe have built up a reputation of being loose then the boys who are going to ask them out are going to expect them to put out.
0: Right. So and just, you know, what radical feminism, again, would say is that women, if they show any desire, then they kind of lose their ability to stop something when they want it to stop or, you know, they've now put themselves in another category altogether. So, yeah. That's what I was going to say. So I think these are all the ways that the radical feminist critique says patriarchy undermines women's. Autonomy in the sexual realm is in all those ways.
1: And you mentioned object lessons that kind of go along with this, um, de-legi- delegitimizing, sorry, desire yeah. um, that we have in our young women's lessons. You know, the chewed gum. Can you talk about that? Sure, absolutely.
0: So you know, it, after I looked at what the radical feminist critique was, and I looked at you know how is it applicable, or how do I, how do we see it in the church? And so. Um, yeah, so one of the things um, that I at least heard plenty of growing up was this idea that if you are sexually um, engaged in any way, if you have sexual experience, you lose your desirability. And of course, your desirability is really this important thing that you have to hold because getting married and being wanted is, was, at least in my young women's program, held up as very important for women mine too. Uh, yes. And so I remember several object les- lessons where I remember my teacher pulled out a pack of gum. She said, Jennifer, would you like a piece of gum? I said, yes. She opened it up. She stuck it in her mouth. She chewed it. She spit it out and then said, would you still like it? <laughs> well, of course I didn't. <laughs> uh, but the point is, you know, don't be chewed gum because no one will want you, right? If you have sexual experience, you lose your desirability. So for heaven's sakes, don't be sexual and don't have desire, um, they're going to work against you. And, you know, I, I've given presentations around the country and people have told me other ones, you know, this crushed flour, the smashed cake. And I've asked men, um, you know, if they ever received those object lessons and I never had anyone say that they did. They just said, you know, we were taught not to chew the gum and not to smash the cake. <laughs> but, <laughs> but not, to, you know, but not.
1: Um, not that they were going to, to be.
0: Yeah, but not that their experience would make them become less desirable to her.
1: When you quote David O'Macay, I'm going to go ahead and read this. It says, um, the flower by the roadside that catches the dust of every traveler is not the one to be admired and is seldom, if ever, plucked. But the one blooming way up on the hillside, protected by the perpendicular cliff, is the flower with the virgin perfume, the one yeah. the boy will almost risk his life to possess. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: So the, it's unfortunate that possess part at the end, but yes, uh huh, all of it. So that's
1: well, it this exa- is almost it exactly. it's almost a message to the boys too that you know if if you know that a girl has have dust on her, you know that you make sure you don't want to pluck her. So again, it's right. it's not even taking into account the woman's personality or what she has to offer, or right. it, It's more about whether or not she has dust on her.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So this whole, the whole person and her whole history and her whole, all of her experiences and what she's learned from them, are not what matters. That women are to be the objects of male desire and they're to make themselves that way, um, in order to um, have the good fortune of somebody wanting you. That that's patriarchal ideology in practice.
1: And then the sense of shame for the girls who have experimented with sex before marriage um, is pretty overwhelming with these types of of kind of uh constructs in place
0: yeah absolutely so i did find with my dissertation that that the women who had done more than they felt comfortable with in the sexual realm or had masturbated had carried a lot of shame um and even if they had repented and they would say to me i really believe that god has forgiven me i don't hold any question about that but often had not told their husbands about their experiences because they really feared that he would not be able to forgive them for it. So that So they figured
1: it out with God, but they haven't been able to figure it out within their social con- construct. Right.
0: That's right. And you know, they would say, you know, because I've been forgiven, I don't need to talk about this with my husband. But I would say it really does expose the anxiety, the social anxiety because if they really felt they were forgiven, and they didn't feel that their husband had an, was going to have any issue with it. They could speak about it freely about all that they learned from those experiences and what it's taught them about who they are in the world and so on.
1: Well, and that idea of we marry our best friend and don't we want to be able to share everything with our best friend if they truly are our best friend, right? But right. somehow we're limited um, even within that very sacred relationship to really be ourselves in, That's in a right. sense. Now, and I, I know that we're for the men who are maybe listening to our program, this obviously is related towards women, what we're discussing today, but I don't want to ignore the fact that this also has a lot of correlation with what men Mm -hmm. feel as well within our culture. I mean, this sense of shame when they um, have sexual experiences or have masturbated or have looked at pornography or whatever it is that they have done also um, is usually hidden many times from their wives, is not. that's right they have kind of that same those same issues
0: yes and I I think there's kind of two pieces that I was trying to look at in the dissertation there's there's patriarchy and patriarchal ideology around sexuality and desire for women but then it's all happening within a context of sexual conservatism that has a singular standard of conduct for the men and women so there's a lot of inhibition of sexuality in general so those two were coming together in my mind to create a lot of shame within women and a lot of inhibition, at least within some of the women that I interviewed. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events, information about her free Facebook group, and more. Thank you for being here.